You don't need me to tell you that we are living in unprecedented times. Here we are in a pandemic for the first time, at least quite like this, in over 100 years. If that's not bad enough, we live in a divided nation. I don't think I've ever seen our nation more divided. Now, you may, if you're a little bit older than I am, say, uh, John, I've seen it worse than this. But I would say to you, in the 28 years that I've been living, this is the worst (laughs) that I've ever seen it. I'm just making sure you're awake out there. Not only is the nation divided, but we live in a very angry world. I don't think I've ever seen so much anger. All you have to do is turn on the news at night and you feel that. And you think, man, here we are with a pandemic, the nation is divided, and the world is angry. And not only is the world angry, people are angry. And you just wonder this, and sometimes you might ask this question, what is the world coming to? Well, friend, I'll tell you what the world's ultimately coming to. The world is coming to Jesus. There's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Christian will bow, the atheist will bow, and everybody in between will bow, and they will confess that Jesus is Lord. But before that day happens, the world is coming to a climax. You can feel it in the air now that It's kind of like we're in the pre-shocks of a major earthquake, and we're feeling the shocks now, but we know something even worse or even greater is coming, and that is so very true. Now, for those of us who are saved, it's not something worse. It's something better. It's the return of Jesus Christ, and we know that at any moment He could come for us and take us to heaven to be with Him. But for those who are unsaved, it's something much worse. It will be the tribulation period that will be on this earth. And I said in one of the previous sermons when we were doing these online only that I think God is giving us now a glimpse, a small glimpse of what it will be like during the great tribulation. We know that when the tribulation is happening on earth and all of us who are saved are in heaven that we will experience what we studied last Sunday morning and that is the marriage of the Lamb. That is when we first get to heaven or at least after we've been there for a little while we will have our spiritual union with Jesus Christ formalized. Now, we're already united with Jesus through faith. He's living in our hearts. But at the marriage of the Lamb, that will be formalized. And it is as though that spiritual union will be consummated. And so for seven years, we'll be in heaven with the Lord celebrating while the tribulation is happening on earth. And at the end of those seven years, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ will leave heaven. He'll come back to this earth. And that is the second coming of Christ. Let me remind you that at the rapture of the church, Jesus doesn't come to the earth. He only comes to the air. And we'll meet him in the air. He'll take us to heaven. And we'll be there for seven years. But after that, Jesus will leave heaven and we'll follow him out of heaven. You may never have thought about it that way. That after you get to heaven, one day you're going to leave heaven and we're going to come back to this earth. The Bible says at the second coming, Jesus' feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and that mountain will split in two. When it does, he'll walk down that mountain. We'll follow him through that Kidron Valley, up on the other side, into the city of Jerusalem. And for a thousand years, Jesus will rule and reign the world from Jerusalem. There will finally be peace in the Middle East. And there'll be peace everywhere else when Jesus is ruling and reigning and we'll be right there with him. But before Jesus' feet stand on the Mount of Olives and before he goes into Jerusalem, 
to set up that kingdom, Jesus has one more battle that he must fight. It's the last great battle, and it is known as the Battle of Armageddon. And this past Sunday night and Monday, when I was beginning the preparation of this sermon, my intent originally was to preach one sermon on the Battle of Armageddon. And I thought, man, that's going to be loaded down. That'll be a good old long sermon. And I thought, well, you know, maybe instead of just putting all of it out there, it might be better to take two weeks and study the Battle of Armageddon so it won't be so much information. And so maybe hopefully we can absorb better what it is that we're learning. And so today, we're going to be studying the background to the Battle of Armageddon. Next Sunday morning, we're going to be thinking about the battle itself. What's going to happen in this battle? What will be the outcome of this battle? But this morning, we're thinking about how does the battle ever happen to begin with? In other words, how do all these people get to this place where this battle is going to be fought? And so the two questions we're thinking about today is, where will this battle be? And secondly, who will be there? So if you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Revelation, and let's try to answer those two questions. Question one is easier to answer than question two, but I want to go ahead and put it out there. The battle of Armageddon will be fought in northern Israel, not far from the Sea of Galilee, but it will be fought in a valley called the Valley of Jezreel, the Jezreel Valley or the Valley of Megiddo. In ancient times, there was a thriving city known as Megiddo. In fact, Megiddo was considered to be the most important city in the ancient world. It was the crossroads, really, for many nations, and that they would, you'd have to go through Megiddo to get to where you're wanting to go. And as far as trade was concerned, it was a major trade route. And so, whoever controlled Megiddo controlled the trade, the commerce, the money of the day. And so, it was all about this city and the valley, what we might call the plain of land, the big open field, as it were, that surrounded Megiddo. We have a picture of that, and if you've been to Israel, you have certainly been down into that valley. That picture was taken on top of Mount Carmel. Maybe you remember the story in the Old Testament where we read about Elijah, and he had that showdown with those prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and they were trying to determine who was the true God. And we read about that in 1 Kings. And, of course, the God of heaven proved himself to be the true God. And Elijah ended up killing these prophets of the false god Baal up on top of Mount Carmel. Well, at the bottom of that mountain is the old city of Megiddo. It's just the ruins there today. But out in that open space, that's the Valley of Jezreel or the Valley of Megiddo. And historians tell us that more battles have been fought on that piece of land, that's right in the middle of that picture, that brown uh, open area there, that is the, the Valley of Megiddo where the Battle of Armageddon one day will be fought. More blood has been shed on that piece of land than anywhere in the whole world because through the, year, through the centuries, countries and kings have fought to have control of Megiddo so that they could have control of the commerce, the trade, and all of the money. Napoleon actually said that that valley right there is the world's most natural battleground. It's an open space, but it's surrounded by mountains, and so whoever control that control the world. It's about 60 miles north of Jerusalem, and there it is in northern Israel. That's where the battle will be fought. Now, the more difficult question for us to try to answer this morning is, who will be there? 
We know that Jesus is coming out of heaven. We know that we'll be following him out of heaven. But who is going to be on the losing side of this battle? Well, go to Revelation chapter 16. Let's begin there this morning. The battle of Armageddon is actually described for us in chapter 19. But the background, or at least much of the background for this battle, begins in chapter number 16. Now, Remember, the battle of Armageddon will take place at the end of the seven-year period of tribulation. And so when we come back to chapter 16, we're coming to the end of the tribulation, and we're reading now about how the stage is being set for this battle. So let's look at it. Verse number 12 of chapter 16. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl. These are the bold judgments coming on the earth. On the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Now, let's just stop right there and think about the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River is sometimes just called the Great River because it is the Great River. It's the ultimate river. In fact, the, great, the Euphrates River runs 1,800 miles. Think about that, 1,800 miles from Mount Ararat in the north. That's at the foot of that mountain. That's where the river begins, and it runs down and dumps off into the Persian Gulf. And so it goes through several countries. And so the Bible is saying here that at the end of the Great Tribulation, God is going to dry up this great river. Think about that. A river that runs 1,800 miles, God is going to dry it up. Now, why is God drying it up? He's drying it up so the kings of the east can cross that river and get to that valley of Megiddo in northern Israel. Now, who are the kings of the east? Well, if you go home today and get a map or a globe, I did this last week. I said, I want to just see this river on a globe, and I want to see which countries are immediately to the east of it, because certainly, or at least most probably, some of these countries would be included in the, this confederation of nations that will be crossing the dried up Euphrates. It's interesting. Immediately to the east of the Euphrates River is the nation of Iran. Now, we know through the years that Iran has not had very many good things to say about Israel. There's constant tension today between Israel and Iran. To the east of Iran is China. And uh, China kind of feels the same way toward Israel. In fact, if you'll turn back in chapter number 9, I'll show you an interesting verse. And many people think that this verse is a reference to the Chinese army who will cross the dried up river and come into the valley of Megiddo. Verse 16, now the number of the army of horsemen, now watch this, was 200 million. And again, many believe that is a reference to the Chinese military, which is huge, so that they now would be part of this Eastern Confederation of Nations coming to the Valley of Megiddo. And then to the east and to the north, really more north and east of China, you have the nation of Russia. And you know, just from watching the news and reading the paper, that Russia and uh, Israel don't have a very peaceful relationship. So isn't it interesting that when the Bible talks about these kings of the east, it could well be these nations that even today, many of the leaders of those nations are not very fond of Israel. But lest we pick 
too much on Iran and China and Russia. Let's read on in chapter 16, beginning in verse 3. We'll learn some more things. In verse 13, chapter 16, verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's the devil, out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs, now watch this, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And so, yes, it is true that the kings of the east, most probably Iran, China, Russia, but it's not just those nations. It's all the nations of the world and the kings from all those nations. Well, keep in mind, at this point in the tribulation, in order to be a ruler of the world, you would have to be in partnership with the Antichrist. You would have to have his blessing. In fact, you would have had to have pledged your allegiance to the Antichrist. And so it won't just be the kings from those three nations. It'll be the kings from all the European and the leaders from all the European nations. It will be the kings from Canada, from Mexico, from the United States even. It says here, all the kings of the earth, of the earth, and they will bring their armies, in some cases their entire armies, in some cases a representation of their armies, and they will come to this uh, valley of Megiddo. Now look at, it, look at it, the end of verse 14 again, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now, as that's happening on the earth, all these kings are making their way, and many of their armies are making their way to the valley of Megiddo. What is Jesus saying? Well, look in verse 15, because right in the midst of this, Jesus speaks. And he said, behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And so Jesus is saying, hey, when you see all these nations gathering to the valley of Megiddo, know this, I'm about to come out of heaven. Heaven's going to be open, and I'm coming back, and I'm going to end this battle. Look in verse 16. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. That's the only place in all the Bible where you will find the word Armageddon. It means Mount Megiddo or uh, you know, where, where the city of Megiddo was. So it's clear the reference uh, where that will be, right in that, right in that valley. Now, the question is not only who will be there, because that's who's going to be there. And by the way, all these people are unsaved at this time because they are in partnership or have been in partnership with the Antichrist. Now, here's a good question. Why will these nations come to that valley in northern Israel? Now, I, we clearly just read in the verse up there that these demon spirits are going to persuade many of them to come and, and to, for the, to get to the battle, uh, the valley of Megiddo. So that's part of it. But, but what will be the motivation in the leaders' minds of these nations that would make them want to go and take their armies there? Well, think about it. At this point in the tribulation, so many judgments have happened, so many people have been killed, so many... Horrible things have happened on the earth, and the people living on the earth will know, either from the Antichrist or they're just figured out themselves, it seems to be, they will think to themselves, the God of Israel who's causing all these plagues, who's causing all these problems. And so they will think, if we can just destroy Israel, then maybe we can put an end to this. All through history, 
the nation of Israel has been a hated nation by the majority of the world. Now, for those of us who are Christians, that's not true. And many others who are not Christians love Israel uh, as well. Certainly the Jewish people love Israel, but even some who are not Jewish and not Christians, they love Israel because it is a democracy in the midst of a world where there are really not very many democracies at all. But nonetheless, the nation of Israel has been persecuted from its inception. We know that the devil hates God. If you believe that, say amen. Certainly the devil hates God. But he hates everything associated with God. And Israel is the nation most associated with God because God gave birth to that nation. So Satan, through the years, has tried to destroy Israel. Not only does the devil hate God the Father, but the devil hates Jesus. And so the devil has always been trying to destroy Jesus. This is why as soon as Jesus was born... King Herod, under the influence of the devil, had all the babies, two years old and under, in Bethlehem killed. Why? Because he was trying to kill Jesus. He had heard that the Messiah had been born, and he wanted to wipe him out. Well, that was clearly motivated by the devil. And so at this point in the tribulation, there are some scholars who say, well, the motivation for all these kings coming to northern Israel, they're trying to come together and destroy the nation of Israel because they're taking out on the people of God what, the people, what their God has done by sending all these judgments and sending all these plagues. So that's possibly a reason. Some say, and we'll get more into this next week, that at this point in the tribulation, they believe what's really going to be happening is that many of these world leaders are going to turn against the Antichrist. Remember, at the beginning of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to make a peace treaty He's going to say, if you'll follow me, there'll be peace in the world. And yet, seven years after that, he's broken the treaty. All hell is breaking loose on the earth. And so the Antichrist popularity is all, all obviously going down the drain. And so perhaps what's going to happen is many of these leaders are going to say, we pledged our allegiance to the Antichrist. He has not delivered on his promises. And what we need to do is gather together and defeat and destroy him. So what I'm saying is there appears to be confusion even amongst the people who are going to this valley for the great battle. Why are we going here? Are we going here to destroy Israel? Are we going here to destroy the Antichrist? Are we going here to destroy each other? It's confusion. The devil, wherever the devil is, there's always confusion. And I believe there'll be great confusion as to why they're even in this valley. Now, go to chapter 19, because I want to show you as, as this whole group has gathered in the valley of Megiddo, an amazing thing happens from above. Chapter 19, verse number 11. John's having this vision now of the end of the world. And he said, now I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is Jesus. And we'll get more into this part next week. But let's just read it today. Verse 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen. Remember, this fine linen is what we receive at the marriage of the Lamb in heaven. It's a, it's a, we'll each receive a robe, and the thickness of that robe, and the length of that robe, and the quality of that robe will be determined by our righteous acts, how faithfully we have walked with God, how faithfully we have served God during our time on earth. It's part of our reward. 
And it says of this fine linen, white and clean. And it says that they followed him. That is, we're following Jesus on white horses. So Jesus is on a horse, and we're on horses following him out of heaven. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so while all this mayhem is taking place in the valley and all these kings are bringing all their armies to this valley, either to destroy Israel, to destroy the Antichrist, or destroy each other, there's great confusion in this valley. In the midst of that, heaven opens and Jesus is descending on a white horse. And so when this happens, the Antichrist looks up to heaven. He senses the confusion in the valley. He even senses that many of the people want to destroy him. And so in verse 19, notice what the Antichrist decides to do. John said, and I saw the beast, that is the Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And so as they're all gathered there and they look up and see Jesus, the Antichrist, gets everybody's attention, and he unites them around this. He says, hey, let's fight him. And that will be the last bad decision the Antichrist ever had. Because when he decides now to engage Jesus, and of course Jesus by this point has already decided to engage him in war, it'll be a quick war. And we'll see it more next week that it says there's going to be a sword that goes out of the mouth of Jesus, and the battle will end just like that. Remember, the Bible says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Will it be a literal sword that comes out of the mouth of Jesus? Or will it be the sword of God's Word where Jesus just says something and His words put down the Antichrist? One of my favorite preachers said, he believes that when Jesus looks at the Antichrist, he's going to say two words, drop dead, and it's all over with right there. So I kind of like that. Because the Word of God is just that sharp and just that powerful. But the point is, when the Antichrist looks up and sees Jesus, he's going to say, let's fight him. And Jesus is going to put him down, and the battle will be over just like that. And so it won't take long. Now, as we think about all these people in this valley, remember, none of them are saved. They have all pledged their allegiance to the Antichrist. It is a horrible setting, and it is an evil group. There are three words that I think describe what's going on in this valley. First of all, there's wickedness. Second of all, there's confusion. They don't even know why they're there. And thirdly, there's arrogance, because the Antichrist says, let's fight Jesus. We're going to fight the creator of the world and the king of the universe. But at the battle of Armageddon, think about this. You still listen? Say amen. Wickedness will encounter righteousness, confusion will encounter truth, and arrogance will encounter the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Jesus will end this battle. If this battle were a boxing match, I would say as soon as they rang the bell, it was over with. If this battle were a sporting event, I would say as soon as the national anthem was over, this, this fight, it was a rout. It was over with just like that. It's going to be over with in a hurry, and we don't have to do anything. All we have to do is follow Jesus. Now, it's interesting to me as I think about the battle of Armageddon, as I said at the beginning, you can feel in the world today anger, tension, nervousness. We're in a pandemic. Call it what you want to call it. We're in a plague. Who would have thought 
in the day in which we live, modern medical advancements, scientific minds, technological things that we can experience that whoever would have thought this would be happening. And yet in our sophisticated day, we're experiencing a worldwide plague. You can feel that the world is coming to a climax, and this is the climax that it's ultimately headed to. On one of our trips to Israel, I believe it was in 2006, we were down in that valley of Megiddo. We had been on top of Mount Carmel. Our guide had lectured to us about Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and we got on the bus. We went down into that valley and got out of the bus, and he gathered us for a lecture about Megiddo. He talked to us about the ancient city. He talked to us about where we were. He explained things. Let's put that picture back up on the screen. I want to close with this today. I know we're not in Israel. I know we're in Texas. But use your mind's eye and imagination. Let's just play like that we're there. And uh, try to put yourself in this lecture that our guide gave to us. There we're sitting at the bottom of that mountain in that valley or we're standing and he's lecturing to us and he's explaining that Megiddo in Old Testament times was not only the most important city in the world but it was one of the most wicked cities in the world and the reason it was so wicked is because it was occupied by Canaanites who worshipped the false god Baal, B-A-A-L. If you read the Bible much, you come across that name, Baal. And we wonder, now what is this, what is this god Baal? It's a false god, but it's like, they, they, it's like a mythological god. They made it up, but in their minds it was real. And to them, Baal was the god of fertility. Baal was the god who caused it to rain. Baal was the god who caused families to have children. Baal, anything that had to do with fertility, it always came from Baal. Well, our guide explained to us that when the Canaanites were living in Megiddo, worshiping Baal, they did some of the most wicked, ungodly things that you can imagine. One of the things that they did was they practiced sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, anything you can imagine, out in the open, hoping that Baal would see them doing that. And that as a result of that, Baal would go find his mistress, and they would come together, and they would populate the region there with more children, and they would send down rain, and they would bless them. So they were practicing sexual immorality, trying to get a blessing from their God. It's unthinkable to us, but it's what happened then. Not only that, when a, when a little baby boy was born into a family those parents would take that little infant and sacrifice that infant in the fire to the false god Baal. And their logic was, if we give to Baal our firstborn son, then Baal will recognize our faithfulness to him. We'll sacrifice one son. He may give us ten. And so wickedness, I mean unthinkable wickedness, ungodliness, vileness was happening in Megiddo. And our God is explaining that to us. And I'm standing there and I'm thinking, I never knew that. I never knew how bad it was in Megiddo. And then the God said, but if we could look across that valley. Now remember on that picture, this must have been taken in the in the summer or the, maybe the fall or sometime when it's very dry or maybe just not the season when there was green grass. But that brown patch in the middle, that is the valley of Megiddo. But on the other side of that valley, just 10 miles from the city of Megiddo, 
is the city of Nazareth. Nazareth, of course, is the city where Jesus grew up. That was Jesus' hometown, Nazareth. Our God said this. He said, think about where we are. Think about what is represented in this location. He said, on this side of the valley, from that picture, the near side of the valley, Satan, through the worship of Baal, was having a heyday in this region. Across that valley, a few years later, after Jesus had been born, a little six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven-year-old boy was running up and down those hills of Nazareth. Total innocence, complete purity, the ultimate expression of holiness and godliness. He said, think about what I'm saying. On one side of the valley, Satan is having a heyday. On the other side of the, ba- of the valley, the Son of God, as a little boy, is running up and down those hills. And he said to us, and it gave me chills when he said it, and it may have that effect on you today. He said, one of these days, at the Battle of Armageddon, they'll meet in the middle. Wickedness versus righteousness. Confusion versus truth. Arrogance versus the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As I thought about that, just standing in that valley and looked up into heaven and thought about how Jesus one day will descend and we'll be following him out of heaven to come to the earth and to rule and to reign with him for a thousand years before ultimately the new heaven and the new earth comes down to the earth. We've got all that to cover yet in our study of Revelation. I I thought this to myself. When the battle of Armageddon takes place, it's going to be very obvious who's on which side. Because those of us who are on the Lord's side are going to be clothed in fine linen, white. We're going to be riding on white horses following Jesus. It won't be hard to to identify us as followers of Jesus. And everybody down in that valley, it won't be hard to identify them as the followers of the Antichrist, the rejecters of God, the enemies of Jesus. It'll be clear who's on the Lord's side and who's not. And then I thought, you know, in the world in which we live, in our day and time, it's not always clear Who's on which side? Sometimes you're talking to somebody and you can't tell now, is she saved or not? Is he really saved? Sometimes we just can't tell who's really a Christian and who's not. But on that day, we will be able to. On Monday night when I was working on this part of the sermon, I just felt led of God to end this service today differently than we would normally end it. And so it was very effective at at the first service, and I believe God will honor it in this service as well because I believe this is from God. Here's what I want us to do today. If before you came in this room this morning, if there has been a time in your life when you have repented of your sins, asked Jesus Christ to save you, and confessed Him openly and publicly before men, if you've already done that, I'm going to ask you, if you would, please, to stand up right now as your way of saying, I'm on the Lord's side. I'm on the Lord's side. One day it'll be clear we'll be in our white robes and we'll be on our white horses and we'll be following Jesus. Okay, that's most everybody. Thank you, thank you. Please, please be seated. Now the harder part. If you would say to me, see, that took courage to do what you just did, but it didn't take too much courage because most everybody else stood up with you, right? 
But if you would say today, John, if I'm honest, I'm not sure that there's ever been a time in my life when I repented of my sins, when I asked Jesus to save me, and when I confessed him openly and publicly before men. See, now is the time to do that. So I'm going to ask you, if you've never done that, there may be one person in the, in the 9 o'clock service, there was one young man. I would guess he was about 28 or 29 years old. I had never seen him here before. He was sitting on about the third row. I didn't know if anybody would stand up or not. And when I got to this point, he stood up. I don't know if anybody's going to stand up in this service or not. I don't know. I don't know if one person will. I don't know if two people will. I don't know if ten people will. But if you today, in all honesty, would say, you know, John, I'm not 100% sure that I'm on the Lord's side. And I'm not really 100% sure that I've ever come out in the open in public and let it be known where I stand. One day it will be obvious, but I want it to be obvious now that I want Jesus Christ to be my Lord and to be my Savior. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to say anything. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front. I'm just asking you to stand up right now. That will take courage. Let me give you just a moment to do that. Is there anybody in this room, in this service, Who says, before the battle starts, I want to let it be known whose side I'm on. Is anybody? I'm going to give you 30 seconds. It will not be easy to stand. But you will never regret it. 20 seconds. Say, John, I want to know for sure that Jesus Christ is living in my heart. 10 seconds. Anybody, let this be today. Now is the time. Today is the day. I know it's not easy, but you'll not regret it. You just got to stand up, and I'll lead you in a silent prayer. Anybody, three seconds. Okay, not in this service. Father, I thank you that there's coming a day when righteousness will defeat wickedness, when truth will trump confusion, and when the King of kings and Lord of lords will put an arrogant antichrist into the lake of fire forever and ever. God, I pray that between that battle and this day, this day and that battle, that we will be faithful to you. God, none of us is perfect. We sin more than we ought to. And God, we thank you, as we sang earlier, that your mercy is greater than all of our sins. God, I thank you for that. But God, I pray that for however much time we have left on this earth, God, the rapture could happen this afternoon. It could happen before this service is over. But however long we have left, God, I pray, I pray, God, that we will be faithful to you until that day. Well, this is a beautiful thing because I thought it might be the case. Jimmy just came and told me that we have one person. I couldn't see on the upper level. One lady, look at her, standing up up there. Bless your heart, ma'am. That took a lot of courage. That took a lot of courage. That took a lot of courage. That took more courage than what the rest of us did. And I want to just congratulate you. With our heads bowed, I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now. Our heads bowed and eyes are closed. Everybody in this room, pray silently for this sweet lady at the, in the upper level. Would you just, ma'am, would you just pray this from your heart? Just say, dear Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins. And make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. I trust you to do it. 
Welcome to my heart, Lord. Begin now to make me the person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name. And all the people said, amen.